One, to avoid offending social sensibilities. By having women teach, it would have been offensive. It would have hurt the church's reputation. Male leadership was the rule of the day in the ancient world. Number two, women could not lead uh, until they became more educated, more socialized, more experienced for the role of leadership. Women weren't educated in the ancient world, so of course they couldn't be leaders yet, but then they came, and of course nowadays, in our age, more women than men get a bachelor's degree. More women than men get master's degrees. And women are closing in on men on PhDs and law degrees and medical degrees. So you see, women are educated, so it doesn't apply anymore. They also say, feminists also say, Christian feminists, that uh, the heretical teaching encouraged women to leave their traditional roles. And once those heretics who were upsetting all role relationships are gone, then we can settle back into giving women more freedom. In other words, there were some heretical women or some heretical teachers that were overemphasizing a woman's freedom. And once the overemphasis is, is done, then, of course, we can have our normal, uh, our normal life. Number four, um, there were actually some false teachers who said that women were actually better teachers, superior teachers to men, and so Paul was trying to counteract that. Uh, that's a broad read of why feminists, again, biblical feminists, would say that women can teach and exercise authority because the culture has changed. Now, this view is, is advocated in a wide variety of ways. There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of, of articles and books that have been written advocating these things. Lots of, lots of women and men are taking this view that it doesn't really uh, mean what it says. Let me give you two examples, just two clear examples of Christian feminists and their arguments. There is a, a couple, actually, named the Kragers, especially the woman Catherine Crager, <clears throat> and they wrote a book called I Suffer Not a Woman, published by Baker a few years ago, maybe 1993, uh, in which they argue that Paul prohibits the teaching activity of women uh, because there were women teaching a grave misconception of role relationships at that time. Specifically, in Ephesus, there was a powerful female deity named Artemis who was worshipped in that city. That's a, that's a fact. That's historically a fact. That they, you can, in fact, read about in Acts chapter 19 that there was an Artemis cult. And because Artemis was a woman... Women in the city of Ephesus exercised something close to a monopoly. Women exercised a monopoly on religious power. They say the primary religious power in Ephesus lay with women in the first century. Ephesian women assumed the role of men-slaying Amazons who had founded the cult of Artemis. It was a bastion of female supremacy in religion. That's what they say. Um, now, in the book that I referred to, Women in the Church man, a scholar by the name of Stephen Ball, who wrote very extensively, his dissertation was actually on uh, this, uh, shows that what I'm saying to you is Ball's more of an expert than the Craigers. The Craigers wrote ten pages. Ball wrote a dissertation. So that's better. Dissertations are better. Uh, Ball proved by historical research that women in that city did have roles 
and they were given a certain level of, of uh, respect and prominence, but it was more public or show prominence than it was actual leadership. Male priests still dominated uh, because religious, political, and economic life were intertwined, and the males who led that also led the religious scene. The idea of Amazonian male slaying women is unfortunately unsubstantiated. In fact, contrary to the historical evidence, men led Ephesus as they did everywhere. Baugh shows. Now, the Craigers also say that there was a heresy that taught four things, three or four things. One, that Eve was the originator of Adam, that she came before Adam. Two, that Adam was deceived, but Eve was his own enlightener. And three, that childbearing is intrinsically unworthy of women. The Craigers say, you see, we had this very unusual teaching going on in Ephesus. And that's why, you know, Paul had to take strong measures to control women. The problem with the Craigers hypothesis is that there's no written evidence that anybody actually ever taught this. Not only is there no written evidence that anybody taught this group of teachings in Ephesus, there's no evidence that anybody in the history of the human race ever taught all of these things in one document or in one city. There, are, there were people over the centuries, over the first four centuries of the church, who taught individual things from this group, but nobody taught all three. And certainly nobody taught all three in Ephesus in the first century. So how could Paul be opposing what nobody has ever taught in the history of the human race? It doesn't make sense. And so the Craigers' argument uh, is not well received, to put it mildly. Number two, another example, Gordon Fee. You read some of his material. Again, he's a great, great scholar, extremely knowledgeable. Uh, he has written on this subject and kind of builds on some of the reading you did um, Gordon Fee, and one reason why I had you read it is not only because it's a good introduction, because it sets up this discussion. Gordon Fee emphasizes in, his, uh, in the introduction to the pastoral epistles that they are written to oppose false teachers. You read that or will read that for the class. And then he takes that principle and he builds on it in this manner. He says the whole letter basically deals with false teachers, and so it's words for women who are under the influence of false teachers does not apply universally to women who generally do not suffer such influences. He goes on to say, it cannot be demonstrated that Paul intended 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 as a rule in all churches at all times. Now, I say this, he's a great scholar and I have great respect for him. I've had a meal or two with him. Wonderful man, but I can't agree with him. And... The reason why I don't agree is, number one, that's a very dangerous principle. What he just did was say, it can't be demonstrated that Paul intended his teaching as a rule in the church at all times. Wait a minute. That sounds like he's saying that when you read 1 Timothy, the burden of proof is on the reader that it still applies. I would say he's got it exactly backwards. If you want to say it doesn't apply, you better prove that the culture changed a lot. And that God gave additional light. It's not on the burden of the ordinary Christian to prove that it still does apply. It's the burden on the scholar to prove that it doesn't apply for some reason, right? There are teachings that don't apply anymore. Like animal sacrifices. And, you know, laws about leprosy. 
and washing of pots. But you've got to prove they don't apply. You can't just say, I assume they don't apply. You've got to demonstrate it. Does that make sense to all of you? Yes. Everybody with me? So that's a dangerous thing. Number two, the fact that, that Paul is correcting an error doesn't mean that he doesn't mean what he's saying. If one of you says to me, one of you did come to me at break and say, now I've got somebody who's going to be dealing with Mormons tomorrow night, would you please tell me what to say to the Mormons? Well, if a Mormon is talking and you're answering the Mormon, you still mean what you say. Just because you're correcting doesn't mean it doesn't really count, right? And in fact, when a teacher teaches, and when a teacher is answering even a question, you say, well, now you're on the wrong track there. What the teacher says to the student is still what the teacher believes, even though the teacher is working from a false question. Or put it another way, maybe a little bit simpler. The fact that a question is put to the teacher doesn't in any way minimize the force of that teaching. You have all heard it said many times over your careers. When a student asks a question, the teacher will say, Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. It gives me a chance to say something about this or that, right? Meaning, therefore, that it wasn't in my notes, but I'd love to talk about it. So maybe we could take it this way with Paul. Even if he's correcting an error, he still means what he says when he corrects the error. Okay. A couple inches to feminists. All right. Now let's move on to see what a passage actually teaches. What does it actually teach? It teaches, number one, that, uh, well, let's just back up a tiny bit. Can the Bible really be limiting when it says, you know, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority? Can the Bible really be limiting the uh, woman's right to exercise her gifts? The answer is yes. Of course the Bible can do that. Uh, you may have a gift and still not necessarily exercise it or exercise it in every way. In the Old Testament, no matter how spiritual you were, if you weren't from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a priest. And no matter how many leadership skills you had, if you weren't from the tribe of Judah, you would never be a king. In fact, you had to be from the line of David from the tribe of Judah or you couldn't be king. Couldn't have that office. No man can be an elder, no matter how many gifts he has, no matter how spiritual and pious he is, if he has a terrible reputation. If he's just gone through a messy divorce or his children are disrespectful and disobedient, you can't exercise those gifts, no matter how many gifts you have. So, there is no difficulty whatsoever in saying you have gifts, but you can't exercise them in a formal teaching office or formal leadership office. You may have a, back to this thing we talked about earlier, you may have a, a function. Women, women should teach and even have the role, but it's possible for somebody to function and have a role, but never actually hold the office of king or priest or elder or teacher in the church. You don't have to hold the office to exercise the gift. Women say, oh, well, you know, Paul's... Paul's excluding women too much. I'm going to get to what this means, but he's not saying women can't ever teach anybody anything. What he's talking about is the office of teacher. I'll get to that in a minute. Give you my thesis in advance just a little bit here. Okay. Chapter 2, verses 8, eight and 9. Paul wants men not to, not to dispute, but to lift up holy hands in prayer. He wants women not to be ostentatious. In their clothing, here's what he does want. Verse 11. 
In the same way, sorry, a woman, not in the same way, just verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Some people focus on quietness, submission, and we will in a minute. But can I just tell you something quickly? The main command is let a woman learn. Did we talk about the woman who called out last week? Did we talk about this? The woman who called out, blessed is the womb that bore you. Did we talk about that? No. We'll talk about it right now. Um, at one point in Jesus' ministry, chapter 11 of Luke, he's kind of teaching along, and maybe he uh, pauses to get a drink of water. A little pause. And a woman cries out from the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you. Blessed are the breasts that nursed you. Sounds very strange to our ears. I mean, nobody's ever called that out to me when I was getting a drink of water. And they probably never will. And in fact, if they did, we wouldn't even know what it meant. Here's what it meant. What it meant was, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, the greatest way for a woman to receive prominence or a big reputation or good name was by having a great son. So when the woman says to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bore you, what he's saying, what she's saying is, You are a great, great man. Your, your mother is blessed. Your mother is great. By blessing Jesus' mother, she blesses Jesus. She praises Jesus in a back door kind of way. But Jesus says, Blessed, no. Blessed, rather, are those who hear God's word and obey it. Now, what he does when he says that is transform the role of women. This woman said the way for a woman to be great is to have a great son. Jesus, you're a great son. Your mother's great. Jesus says, no, the way for a woman to be great is to be a disciple. That's greatness. And discipleship does not know gender boundaries. It's subtle, but he's shifting. Now, Paul is building on that shift. The shift here that Paul is making is, let a woman learn. We focus on, let a woman be silent. Silence is submission. We have to hear that, that Jesus and Paul agree that women should learn. Now then he tells them how to learn. He tells them to learn in silence, which does not mean utter silence, utter speechlessness, because you can't really learn unless you ask a question once in a while, uh, but a quiet manner, a teachable manner. Not constantly interrupting and objecting and correcting, but simply learning quietly. In all submissiveness is similar. Uh, now that little in, sub, in all submissiveness means you're submitting to. When you, when you submit, you submit to. What they're submitting to is the teaching, the teacher, the doctrine. Now some feminists say, yes, women should learn, and that implies that after they're done learning, they should teach. Should all women then teach after they're done learning? The answer, of course, is yes. So should everybody teach after they're done learning. But I have been trying to argue earlier that the setting here is the order of the church, the public life of the church, and we're not just talking about anybody teaching anybody. We're talking about women teaching in the formal life of the church. Can women teach? Yes. My children can teach. My children teach me. They say things like, Daddy, you look tired. Are you sad? You should go to bed. My children put me to bed sometimes. I put them to bed much more often. But once in a while, they teach me. 
Or they'll say, Daddy, you shouldn't be so upset. Don't be sad. It'll work out. God will take care of us. See? They can teach us. They can teach me. My students teach me. In my notes, I have comments that my students have made that are so good and so profound that I've written them down and put them in my notes. Well, that doesn't mean that I'm not still the teacher. They teach, but I'm the teacher. My children instruct me, but I'm still the dad. Right? So, after learning, a woman can teach, but that doesn't mean a woman should have a teaching role in the church. A teaching office in the church. They can have, a, they can have the function. They can have the role. Teach occasionally. What we're talking about here is the office. I'll show you that in a minute. The prohibition, then. A woman should teach. Uh, sorry, a woman should learn. But a woman should not teach. Teach. Or to exercise authority. To teach and exercise authority. I do not permit for a woman. But she should be in silence. Now, this I do not permit. I do not permit a woman to teach and exercise authority. What should we make of that? Well, some people say, feminists say, Paul says, I do not permit. And they say, now I notice that I do not, that's in the present tense. So what he means is, I do not presently permit, which means he may change his mind. And later on, he may permit. That's true. He might if he specifies. What you have to do when you're looking at permission denied is see what else is going on in the rest of the sentence. So if I say to my kids on December 22nd, I do not permit you to open up your Christmas presents until Christmas morning at 6 a.m., because you've got to be specific, or they may do it at 12.01. If you say, I do not permit until, then you know it's temporary. But if I tell my children, I do not permit you to lick your plate, and then they don't lick their plate, lick off you know, the yogurt or the, you know, the syrup or something or other, that they're licking. And then the next day, they're licking their plate again. I say, I told you, I don't permit you to lick your plate. If my kid said to me, well, Dad, you said I do not permit yesterday, and now this is the future. And so I thought that maybe today you would permit it. I would say you thought wrong. You have to establish the context. I do not permit. doesn't mean I'm going to permit it in the future. It all depends on the principle that's being taught. Okay. I do not permit, he says. I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, this word teach is in Pauline diction. If you like, the word is didaskin. Didaskin. You can spell it out for yourself any way you want. Because you don't know Greek anyway, so who's going to correct you? Didaskin. D-I-D-A-S-K-E-I-N would be one way of doing it. Um, the word teach in Paul means most, great majority of the time, it means not just to teach, instruct any old thing, but it means to teach the doctrine of the church. To teach the truths of the gospel. To teach the foundation of the church. And back to the idea that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about the life of the church. Defending doctrine, church office, and now he's talking about who gets to promulgate doctrine within the church. Not just teach any old thing, but doctrine. Uh, we could take, for example, now, uh, good, sharp people will want examples of this, where the word teach doesn't just mean teach any old thing, but it means teach the gospel, teach the core of the faith. And I actually used a verse along these lines uh, tonight and last night uh, that we met together, 2 Timothy 2.2. I stress a different part of it, but listen. 
the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trusted reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. See? It's not just teaching them how to do anything. It's teach that, that reliable doctrine, that truth is going to be the foundation of the church. You'll be able to teach others. Or Galatians chapter 1. We could turn to Galatians 1 and verse 12. Where Paul is talking about the gospel, verse 11, it begins, chapter 1, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from man, from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That little, that word, nor was I taught it. See, he, was, he wasn't taught it by a man. He was taught by God. That's that word, teach. That word is used by Paul most of the time to talk about the formal teaching authority, the content of the apostolic faith. He also uses, uh, that's the word uh, didaskein, didasko didaskein, he uses about 15 times, and 12 of them are used in this way, a formal teaching of doctrine, foundational truths for the life of the church. There's also a noun. It's kind of, a, it's from the same family. The word is didache. If you like to try your hand at learning a couple of Greek words, it's D-I-D-A-C-H-E would be the way you'd transliterate it. Didache. It also is ordinarily used to describe the body of doctrine. Um, one passage where this is taught is Romans chapter 6, verse 17. You can just listen to this and, and save yourselves the effort of turning. He says, uh, thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves of sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You, this is not just any old teaching. This is the teaching to which you were entrusted when you came to Christ. It's the teaching that establishes your life as a Christian. Okay? So that's the idea when he says a woman can't teach. He doesn't mean, here's my point, he doesn't mean a woman can never teach a man anything. He doesn't mean a woman should be totally silent all the time. How do I know that? Well, I know that because just run through the Bible. Huh? You've got Hold of the Prophetess, right? You've got Miriam teaching Israel a song to sing after they crossed the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. And it's inscripturated and, and everybody's instructed by it ever after. And you've got Hannah who also spoke words in her song of praise that are part of Scripture ever after. You've got Abigail instructing David as he's about to go, 1 Samuel 25, and slay Nabal and his whole household for treating him poorly and not sharing in the wealth of the harvest. And she says, now, David, you know, the Lord's going to take care of you. You're the Lord's anointed. You don't want to have blood of innocent men on your hands. The Lord will lead you to his place. You've got to be fit to be a leader. Abigail instructed David. We could say Esther instructed Ahasuerus, and so on. So we know there's a place for instruction. We certainly also know that Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla mentioned first as if maybe she's more prominent. We don't really know that, but it would make sense. Priscilla instructed Apollos, and it happened right there in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. So women can teach. That's not the issue. The issue is, who is the guardian of doctrine? That's what Paul's talking about here. And he links it with the word, have authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And when I, uh, the way I take it, and other scholars as well, 
uh, take it this way, that these two words, teach and exercise authority, are mutually defining. That the way in which a woman is not to exercise authority is by not overtaking this teaching role. That is to say, in the church, the exercise of authority takes place through teaching. And whoever authoritatively, whoever teaches doctrine, the foundational doctrines of the church, is by that act exercising authority. He's not prohibiting two different things, in other words. He's not saying women can't teach and women can't have authority. He's saying these two go together. The exercise of authority in the church, since the Christian faith is an intellectual faith with a doctrinal content, is saying... I don't permit a woman to be the guardian of the doctrine, the promulgator of doctrine. By the way, if you're disagreeing with me, if you have a different view of women's roles, you know, you still may agree with a lot of the, of the particular points I'm making. And so, you know, don't throw out every last thing I'm saying if you think that I may be wrong on this. Now, some people say that uh, what Paul is teaching here is, I, I do not permit a woman to teach, in some translations, King James really one translation says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to usurp authority. I don't permit a woman to teach or steal authority from a man. Some of you perhaps have heard that. Which, of course, is true. A woman should not usurp authority, but, of course, neither should a man usurp authority either. And uh, so I'm not sure exactly why Paul would need to say, don't you, you know, I don't permit a woman to usurp authority because neither women nor men should usurp authority. A woman should not exercise authority, especially through teaching. As one, I'm going to get a little bit technical with you for about five minutes. For those who say that women can teach, can, let, me, let me just pause. Can you do it? Can you hand technical? Maybe you, maybe you think I've already been technical. Am I technical already? Can you do it? Okay, here we go. Uh, some people say that this teaching, a woman cannot exercise authority, really is, I do not permit a woman to usurp authority. Uh, but what, I'm, what I want to argue is that it is actually, it is a prohibition of, of the formal use of authority. Now, here's where it gets a little bit technical. I do not permit, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach and he doesn't, doesn't permit a woman to have authority. Now, how do we know that he's not saying, I, I forbid a woman to usurp authority? The reason is the way in which, now I'm in, here comes the technical part, and I, I put I transliterate it for you. Uh, here's a Greek word, and here's a Greek, two Greek words, kai, uda and kaime, and I transliterated them, uda and kaime. Uda is the word that links teach and exercise authority. What he says is, I do not permit a woman to teach uda, exercise authority, okay? Now, uda is a word used, it's negative, to forbid two things, two words, two verbs, two actions that are positive in themselves. When you've got positive and positive, or when you have negative and negative, you link it with uda. Now, here goes. Let me give you some examples. Flowers... Neither toil nor spin, Jesus says, linked by uda. Because toiling is good and spinning is good. One, two. Men, this is also Jesus saying, Matthew 13. Men neither hear nor understand. Hearing is good, understanding is good. He says they don't do either one, so he links it with uda. Paul consulted, did not consult 
with flesh and blood, but he went up to Jerusalem. Consulting is good. Going up is good in itself. It's linked by Uda. He didn't do either one. So neither of two positive things did he do. First uh, John 3.6, men neither see nor know. Seeing is good. Knowing is good. People didn't do either one. It's linked by Uda. Positive verb and positive verb. When you're denying it, it's linked by Uda. It's not a feature of English. strictly a feature of Greek. Also, if you want to deny two negative things, you link it with Uda just as well. For example, he says, In heaven, thieves neither break in nor steal. They're both negative, right? And so he links it by Uda. Or, I'll give you one more. Paul's, Jesus says, uh, We should neither be troubled nor afraid. They're both negative. Being troubled, being afraid are both negative. He links it with Uda. If you want to link a positive and a negative, you use kaime. Kaime. A positive and a negative. For example, rise up and don't be afraid is linked. Rise up is good. Don't be To be afraid is bad. It's linked by kaime. Like a positive and a negative. What we have here, linking these two words, is uda. Which means, I don't permit a woman to teach, which is a positive thing. I don't permit a woman to exercise authority. Positive and positive. How do you know they're both positive? Because they're linked by uda. In other words, the prohibition is not, I do not permit a woman to teach, and I don't permit a woman to usurp authority. He's not saying, I forbid women to abuse authority. He's saying, I forbid women to wield authority. Now, that's a long ways to go for a payoff, but I think the payoff is important. Now, now's when probably some people are being real quiet because they're ultra polite. And they're wondering what happened to their dear friend, Dr. Doriani, who's become so bigoted <clears throat> and so restrictive. So let me, let me move over to, what, to a few other things. A little while ago, we talked about, oh, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, we talked about the ways in which people lead. And I talked about influence and authority and power, right? Remember that? And the exercise of gifts. And I want to come back to that discussion. Because I have tried to establish my view, which is women can't hold the formal teaching authority, that leaves me a lot of room to say, so what can women do? Well, the answer is a lot of things. They can do a lot of teaching and they can do a lot of leading because most leadership is over here. Most leadership... Can somebody hit the lights for me? Thank you. Um, most leadership is subtle and not autocratic anyway. Most leadership is servant leadership. Most leadership is getting in there and getting your hands dirty leadership. Giving of yourself, of your time, getting a little knowledge, being willing to pitch in and help out. If you're willing to pitch in and help out and learn some things, a kind of leadership will accrue to you more or less automatically. In fact, I would say the great majority of all leadership that occurs on planet Earth in the church and otherwise is of this subtle influence type. It's exercised through things like expertise, persuasion. I've got an idea, let me tell you about it. Putting in time. Women, of course, can do that. That's not formal. 
And again, I'll even say, now, you know, I'm, I'm a professor. I also have a dean's hat. But most of my leadership is really over here, too. It's extremely rare that I say, you know, over in my office, this is the way we're going to do it. Bang. Now, of course, I have to do that at times. But most of the time, when there's a decision to be made around the seminary and around a church, you talk it over. And you come to a consensus. And you listen to whoever has wisdom and experience. So if we get a little slide, a little gradation, then, of course, authority is maybe in the middle. Power. This is a little bit different from the way I explained it to you before. Power is the right to veto something or say, I've decided that's the end. We're done with that discussion. Let's move on. I'll never forget a time when I learned a lesson about that. There was a discussion going on in a committee about somebody to be hired. It wasn't here. It was another school. And uh, the vote was five to two to hire one person. And the chairman said, well, I think we've decided to hire so-and-so. Well, the vote was five to two against. But he was the chairman. And he said, I think we've decided. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, oh, this isn't a democracy. He gets 17 votes and we all get one. In my family, everybody gets one vote, except on occasions when I need six. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's the way it is. And it's not evil in itself, but you don't want to do it too often. And then there's, there's experience, and there's, then there are people who have lots of experience and lots of knowledge, and they hold an office, and we can call that authority. Um, what I'm saying is a woman <coughs> can teach and a woman can lead. This is a man who's a new Christian or a man who has a bad reputation or a man um, for whatever reason, maybe have a lot of abilities, is not, um, is not qualified to be an elder. A, woman, a man or a woman or a child, uh, anybody can exercise leadership on this side of the page. That's where most leadership occurs anyway. You know, that's probably what everybody has in mind, right? Why don't I just launch into that a little bit, okay? So I'm going to just tell you my opinion. I'm not really done finishing verses 13 and 14, but, but let me just tell you uh, what I think you know, is appropriate. Uh, my broad context for this is my understanding of spiritual gifts, which we already talked about. And that is that something like faith is a gift, but every person should exercise faith. Evangelism is a gift. Everybody should evangelize. Service is a gift. Everybody should serve. Encouragement is a gift. Everybody should encourage. Leadership is a gift. Everybody should lead to some extent. Teaching is a gift. We ought all be ought to all be able to, you know, rebuke or encourage or instruct each other when there's a deficit, right? So that's my basic view. Gifts are a heightened ability, and the office is public recognition of a heightened ability with years of practice. In other words, when you ordain somebody as an elder or deacon in your church, you are not hoping they become leaders. You're acknowledging they already are, mostly. You hope they grow into it more, but that's, that really should be the way in which, uh, in which it's operating. You're, you've already had opportunities for somebody to prove themselves. So, uh, a woman, like anybody else, can, can function as needed as a teacher. So, like a... Know, substitute teacher, or can I share something to clarify? And, uh, you know, I happen to study this. I'd, I'd like to have an opportunity to say something. Yes, of course. A woman can teach in that sense. The role would be the semi-regular discharge, somebody who's gifted, and everybody knows that they're gifted. 
uh, that also can take place. What I'm saying is that a woman should not be ordained to the formal teaching office of elder teaching or ruling elder to use Presbyterian language would be my view. We understand that women can teach. I gave you the citations just a little moment ago. Miriam's song, Hannah's song, Abigail's intercession, Hold of the Prophetess in Israel, Daughters of Philip. Women can also lead. Think of Deborah, who was a judge of Israel. Now she said to God, Lord, can't you find any men? The answer was no. And so she led. And if you want to ask the question, is it better that a woman lead than nobody lead? The answer is yes, it's better that a woman lead. If there are no men to go out and be evangelists or to be missionaries, is it better that a woman should go than a man? Yes. But we shouldn't make that exceptional statement into a regularity. One example of this, some people in this room may know this, is in the church in China, where the first missionaries were very predominantly women. The Chinese church was, for a long time, more than 90% female because it was viewed as a woman's church. Now, to, now today, Dr. Lang, who teaches here, says it's 85%. And men, it's starting to become a little bit more church for men, but it was a problem that was, that was uh, created by taking an exception. The first missionaries were women because there weren't any men willing to go, but then the next 200 were women too. And then you took what was an exception and made it regular, and that leads to problems. Uh, other women who led, of course, we'd have Esther. We would have uh, the women who assisted Jesus in his ministry. We'd also think of the women who helped Paul in his ministry. People make jokes or derogatory remarks about Judea and Syntyche, who were quarreling and had to be rebuked in Philippians chapter 4. But let's not forget that Paul describes them as women who contended for the gospel at my side, which sounds like leadership. And then, of course, he also commends Andronicus and Junius. Junius is a female name in Romans chapter 16 who helped them establish the church at Rome. So I have no hesitation about saying women can lead, but what kind of leadership am I talking about? I'm talking about non-leadership uh, you know, like anybody leads, not authoritative uh, teaching within the church. Okay, here's the really hard question. What can women actually do? Well, there's no question that women can engage in a variety of, of, of ministries such as... I mean, nobody, nobody in the world debates this, okay? I'm not saying this is my ultimate answer. I'm just saying this is what nobody debates. Nobody debates because it's plainly taught in Scripture that women should counsel other women. And... Uh, you know, the older women are taught to train and teach younger women to love their husbands and uh, be good houseworkers. It actually says that, by the way. Um, it says that. Women should be good houseworkers. In the Bible, it says that. <laughs> I'm just it doesn't say they have to be immaculate housekeepers. It says they should be good houseworkers. I, I don't have the verse in front of me. So I think it's... Titus 4, 5, is that it? Anyway, I'll find it for you. It's in there. Mature women should teach younger women, instruct them in the faith. So counseling of women, teaching of women by women, women's specialized ministries. Discipleship and evangelism of women would obviously be good things. Visitation of women, overseeing women's ministries. I think there could also be team ministries. You could have men and women teaching together, and, and a woman could be a marital counselor working with a man and the woman, certainly teaching children. I think 
some kinds of administrative tasks are appropriate. I, one of my, not, a, not somebody I know real, real well, but I know pretty well, uh, someone in a, in a church, a large church, who is the missions coordinator. That's a woman uh, because she's gifted a coordinator. She has substantial responsibility, people under her in the church. She is not on the session. She doesn't, she doesn't teach doctrine in her church. But she leads her church by organizing the mission projects of the church. She's not the only one, but she is one of the ones who organizes. She's paid full-time uh, to do that. I think she's full-time in her church. So, uh, the big question is always, of course, in our circles, can a woman teach Sunday school? The answer is yes, a woman can teach Sunday school. Now, by the way, here I'm moving to the realm of my opinion. But my view is, yeah, a woman can teach Sunday school. Tell me more, somebody might say. Here's, here's my view of the matter. I, I would have absolutely no hesitation with a woman in my church when I was, if I was a pastor again, teaching a Sunday school class on uh, parenting, marriage, life transitions. If she was gifted at, you know, some, some uh, you know, discipling ministry, sharing on that, teaching on that. I'd have no trouble with a woman doing that for a few weeks. I'd have no trouble with a woman teaching a team teaching a class with a man for a while. Maybe your husband teaching a marriage class, family class. I think that would be fine. Why? Because I don't think that that's a matter of formal teaching authority. I think that's the kind of thing that it, you know a lot of people could do. My resistance would be at the point of somebody giving a class to Mrs. Jones, who then had this class and she teaches through the Gospel of John for six months, and then she teaches through the Book of Romans for nine months, and then she goes to the Book of Genesis, and that takes a year. See, if you do that, my view of the matter is that if you do that, even if you don't say Mrs. Jones is uh, exercising authority and teaching authoritatively, if you stand behind a pulpit for two years, and you, or podium for two years, and you set the agenda, you begin the remarks and you close the remarks and you wrap up every discussion and you're the Bible teacher, authority accrues to you. You will become authoritative. Now, somebody may, you know, I would also say I wouldn't want a man who hasn't been tested, who's not a, who's not material for leadership, to do that either. If, if a man is good enough to do it, then he should be tested and trained and become an elder. So I, I view that as a matter of consistency because... If you're, if you're a long-term teacher, you are accruing authority. And I believe that the formal teaching authority does belong in the hands of elders, which Paul says here in this passage ought to be male. Just very, very briefly, we'll talk about it more next week. Uh, he goes on and says, this is God's created order. He says in verse 13, for Adam was created first and then Eve. And it, it doesn't, it's not, chron- not chronology per se, that dictates it. What he's doing is he's alluding to the principle of primogeniture. That is to say, the firstborn has the role of authority. That's, that's another part of God's ordaining of things. God has a right to do that. He created Adam first. Adam named Eve. The act of naming in antiquity is known to be an authority exercising act. If you name somebody, you're exercising authority. I actually saw this in a very uh, sort of a crass, direct way a number of years ago. Actually, when I was in seminary, when I was where you are, I worked on a construction crew one summer. We had a, a you know, pretty nasty boss, to tell you the truth. 
And uh, he, you know, he's one of those people that has to have somebody to pick on. You know what I mean? And he chose, uh, he chose somebody on the crew. I was really happy it wasn't me because I thought I might be a candidate. He chose somebody else on the crew of, of uh, you know, just flunkies to become his, uh, his whipping boy. And I'm not going to get into it because, you know, somehow he may see this tape someday. Um, but the nickname that he gave him it had some faint relation to his name was Vegetable. He manipulated his name. And, and you know, the guy, I'll call him George, kept saying, well, no, my name's not Vegetable. It's, you know, it's this. And uh, he said, listen, I named you Vegetable, and that's what I'm going to call you. And, and that's what he did. He would just give people names, and if, if he didn't like them, he'd give them a nasty name, and he'd call them that. So maybe there's something to that to this day. But the idea of Adam being created first, and then Eve as the principal primogeniture, the first one rules as the ordinary standard, and the naming shows that God established a creation order. Now, there's a lot to explore in that creation order, and I write about it at some length in my chapter in, in uh, the book that I've alluded to. Um, but this does stand that, that if you read the passage on its plain reading, it says, a woman should learn formal teaching and authority belongs to a man because that's the way God set up the universe. 